Well, uh, you know, I have people ask me, how's it been? How was it last week having two services? And the consensus is afterwards, bottom line is, first service, it's, it's fresher, but I'm more stiff. <laughs> and you guys are still half asleep. <laughs> Second service is less fresh, especially the humor, because I just told the jokes. <laughs> so I, I, I'm tenet, I can't tell it with conviction because I just said it. And I don't expect laughter, but there's laughter because for them it's new, so it's like less fresh, um, but I'm much more relaxed. I'm much more looser. So if you want fresh, come first service. If you want relaxed, come to second service. And people are more, to, more awake second hour. Right? People are awake because I think the snacks are the first hour. Well, we're continuing our study in Second Timothy, and uh, last night, uh, you know, you know, I, I'm getting, I don't know, my memory is failing me. Bob and I talked about, uh, you know, Derek's playing football for his uh, Beckman High School, his freshman team, plays like line, middle linebacker, outside linebacker, nose guard, same thing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> See, my memory is, so like, yeah, I want to come. And I told, I told our kids, Elizabeth, Emma, and Ethan, we're going to go see Derek play. And so we get all our kids and kind of wanted to get them happy before the game. You know, they're, they're going to be kind of maybe bored a little bit. So we went to a donut shop, bought them donuts to get all them riled up, with the sugar high, you know. So it's Friday at 3 o'clock. We're driving to Beckman High School, and it's like empty. I was like, man, what's going on? Is high school football that unpopular? <laughs> like, at least there'd be few parents coming and watching, and there's like only like a handful of cars. So there's a student hanging around and said, well, where's the freshman uh, football game? And so, oh, that was yesterday. It was on Thursday, not on Friday. And that was the last game of the season. And, and then Elizabeth was like, Daddy, how come you didn't know? <laughs> like, quiet, Elizabeth, quiet. <laughs> They're all sad. I called Bob. I, I, you know. So he told me the varsity game was on Friday night. And so you know, I skipped school so much, I forgot all of these things. So varsity game was on Friday night. So I went to the varsity game with Bob. It's Friday night. It's great. Uh, Beckman's first time making CIF playoffs uh, by beating Corona Del Mar, 24-16 or 27-20. Great game. <laughs> and so I was so encouraged because Bob is doing that ministry where you know, I exhorted you a few months ago or weeks ago, all the husbands especially, to exhort your wives to learn about sports. Right? <laughs> Talk about sports. Watch ESPN Sports Center together watch Lakers and talk about football. And Bob is faithfully doing that to his wife. <laughs> Shepherding his wife in an understanding way. Man, like she knew it better than I did what was going on. And I'm, I'm doing my part. Seren's reading a football book, right? A blind side uh, about a, a left, left tackle, uh, Michael Orr, who's playing for the Baltimore Ravens now. I'm doing my part. So come on, guys. If you guys haven't, aren't on our board, you know, it's, it's for the sake of preaching ministry. I, I have, I, you know, sports illustrations are so, like, uh, you know, so helpful in preaching that you need to help me out. So do your part. So anyway, we're watching this game. And uh, uh, so they, uh, to start the game or after a score, they do a kickoff, right? They kick the ball. And they usually kick it up in the air to go to the whole other side of the field. Now, once in a while, especially, especially at the end of the game, to try to get the ball back through a kind of a fumble, they do an onside kick. The possibility of recovering a fumble after an onside kick is maybe 
15%, maybe less. Very rarely happens. It's like a desperate measure. Well, it's the beginning of the game, and Beckman's coach called an onside kick, and he kicks the ball 15 yards, and Corona Del Mar recovers, and they have a great field position. And Bob and I are like, what is he doing, right? Why does he start the game that way? Well, Beckman scores, and then they kick off again, and the coach calls the same play, onside kick, same thing. Ball goes 15 yards, Corona Del Mar recovers, great field position. So I'm like, Bob and I are like perplexed. What's going on? That makes no sense. This coach ought to be fired. And I, I was thinking, man, if I was the kicker, next time I do it, I'm not going to do an onside kick. All right, I'll just kick the ball as far as I can and tell the coach, oh, I forgot, right? Because this play is not working. So it was their time to kick off again. And I was like complaining to Bob. I was like, man, they're going to lose this game. And they did the onside kick, and they recovered the ball. Right, Corona Del Mar fumbled, and... Beckman recovered the ball, and the play worked. 33% chance, right? One out of three, it worked out for them, right? So I saw discipline among the players. The coach calls the play, and the players execute. It's not the player's job or role or or authority to make decisions on what game plan they're going to follow. They follow the coach. And when a team is disciplined, they understand... um, the hierarchy of authority, the team is successful when the team has multiple heads, multiple authorities, right? rogue players who make their own plays, the team is not successful. Well, here in 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26, we see God's game plan on how to respond to false teachers. How to respond and relate to unbelievers, those who are involved in cults, those who are in the church professing believers, but they they are they have they believe in error, or they're espousing teachings that are inconsistent with the scriptures. We see here God's game plan on how we are to respond to them. Uh, the instruction is consistent throughout the New Testament scriptures, especially throughout the pastoral epistles. Uh, There is no double talk. There is no confusion or God is not speaking in generalities. God is very clear, very specific on how Christians, especially Christian leaders, are to respond to those who are in error, who are teaching error. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, Paul wrote, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And later on in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul commanded Timothy, have nothing to do with irrelevant, um, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness Later on, he talks, said, said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, uh, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, he is puffed up, conceited, understands nothing, has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words. And he tells Timothy, don't involve yourself with such people. Don't get entangled in quarreling in debates, in arguments. Don't get involved in foolish, ignorant, 
controversies, Paul told Timothy, and through the scriptures, Paul is telling every Christian that the best prescription for avoiding uh, or for relating to these people is a proper presentation of the truth, which includes word and deed. God's game plan includes not just right teaching, but right conduct. Right? We're going to study in detail God's battle plan uh, to counter these false teachers. Now, as we go through this, you'll, you'll realize, if you don't know already, this is so much easier said than done. This is one of the thorniest and problematic issues related to spiritual leadership. Responding to people who are unruly, rebellious, unteachable, undermining authority, they're questioning, disagreeing in theology and doctrine. The challenge is not so much knowing the word and answering their questions. The challenge is not, you know, they're going to stump us or they challenge us with these erroneous doctrines, we don't know what to say. Now that part is far, it's, it's difficult, but it's far easier than the conduct part. Responding to them humbly, graciously, gently. And in this arena, I have failed too many times, too numerous to mention. When people disagree, people are unruly in terms of theology, they don't agree, they don't understand, they don't believe. Uh, I failed not so much in answering them biblically, but I failed two numerous times answering them with humility, with meekness, with kindness. Um, give you guys two examples of how I failed in the past and I, how I will fail continually. Uh, one example is how I failed directly, and the other is how I failed indirectly. The first example is... Uh, Years ago, it was when Joe Pugh was attending Cypress College, and he told me one day, James, I'm getting like, um, I'm witnessing to these Church of Christ guys, and they're ganging up on me. Right? I'm losing this, you know, they're saying ba- baptism is, is required for salvation, and they're bombarding me, I'm losing, I need backup. And I'm like, hey, Joe needs my backup, I'm there. Right? He's my brother in Christ, so I go out there, and I dress a little, you know, like cooler than usual, just to kind of fit in with the younger crowd. I meet with this kid, this 19-year-old kid, right, like just, you know, young Christian. And uh, at that time, I had finished seminary, and I've been ministry for several years. And we're talking, going back and forth, and he was telling me about baptism and spiritual authority and Church of Christ. And I was like just going through the whole Bible, right, Genesis to Revelation. I was expounding on Romans and quoting Greek and Hebrew. And I was talking about the Reformation and all these things. And the guy was like, he was like a punk kid, 19-year-old kid, like just, you know, stubborn, right? Just unruly, rebellious, would not heed, listen. He was arguing. And uh, there's a side of me, the sinful side, the flesh side. It's my Korean side, right? (laughs) If older people berate me, I can handle it. But when someone younger than me does that, especially when someone 19 years old does that, man, I'm a a pastor. I'm like, this guy's like telling me about scripture, about theology. 
man, I was getting so offended, so upset. And, um, you know, those of you who know me, so you guys, you don't, some of you don't know, you're new to our church, you think, wow, Pastor James, you know, but many of you know who I am. If you know me, you know that I'm easily annoyed, easily irritated, easily impatient, easily hurt, easily angered, easily distracted, easily arrogant. That describes James Shin, right? At least the fleshly side, the Korean side. That's, that's me. And we're there, and Joe's there watching me. He's like, go, James. I'm like, man, I'm like, I was supposed to come here and like show off to Joe. And I'm, getting, I'm not getting clobbered, but this guy's not cooperating. And I became Elizabeth Lambert, right? Remember her? New Mexico soccer player? Man, I just lost it. I raised my voice. I started yelling. I got angry, and it was not good. Right? It was not, not good at all. And uh, poor example to Joe and, and went home and I realized, you know, I, I might have won the battle, but I lost the war. You know, I was driving down the street. I didn't want to hit a dog, so I swerved and I wrecked my car. You know what I mean? That, that kind of thing. Like I won the battle, lost the war, and that has replayed itself countless times, whether in a counseling situation whether in evangelism, whether in ministry, or whether in preaching, where um, I said the truth, but not in grace. The indirect way I failed is, uh, it's also a long list of times I've done this, is where I have preached and taught against Arminianism with all my might. I have sermons and sermons against the charismatic movement, especially the TBN kind. I have uh, several sermons against the secret-sensitive churches. And uh, I have a whole laundry list of sermons against being lazy, against being irresponsible, being worldly, materialistic. You know, I, I, I come up here and I preach sermons against selfishness and being uncommitted. And some of those sermons used to be my favorite sermons. I, I knew I'd get up there and I could, like, you know, yell at people and preach against sin and preach against, why are you such a loser? What's wrong with you? Why are you so selfish? Why are you so worldly and uncommitted? And I used to get this feeling when I would preach like that. I would get this like, I would get all pumped up and intense. And I thought it was the Holy Spirit like working in my emotions and using me to preach the truth. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, what I believe now, I wasn't the Holy Spirit that I was feeling. What I was feeling was self-righteousness. Right? When I was condemning false theology or false practice, and I was getting all riled up in my heart, what I was feeling was this self-righteousness. It felt so good to berate people through preaching or through counseling one-on-one of their sins or their errors because it made me feel superior. It made me feel right. And it feels so good to be right. It's like a drug. It's so, it feels so powerful when you know someone is wrong theologically or in conduct and you are right. You feel so powerful. You feel so superior. And, if, and to warn people, make them feel guilty, made me feel righteous. It was intoxicating. And... Um, I look back and I believe it was, uh, was self-righteousness that I was feeling. It was not the Holy Spirit. And you know the symptoms of, of why I believe that, the reasons I would believe that, because things that were in my heart 
and things that I that was coming out in private was you know anger, you know pride. I was judging motives. I was ungracious. I was unkind. You know, I wanted people to stop believing certain things or doing certain things, not for for God, but for myself. So parents, we can understand this, right? Too often we want our children to obey not for Christ, but because it bothers us, it upsets us, it inconveniences us. Right? And so we get angry, we get upset, we get impatient. I'll parallel that to ministry. Right? Uh, I, I pray and pray, pray for me. I pray that I am done with such failures, with such preaching and counseling, but I know, you know, what Paul said in Romans 7, when I want to do right, sin is right there with me. Right? So, when I'm ministering, sin is not far away. You know, this is my holy James, right? Holy time. So sin is furthest at this time. No, at this time when I'm preaching, when you are leading, when you're counseling, when you're praying, sin is right. Sin is closer than ever. That's how sinful we are, twist we are. Right? So we need to um, do away with our battle plan, our game plan and intimately study God's game plan and embrace it, believe it, and submit to it. Doing ministry and countering error, whether in doctrine or life, upholds His honor and His glory. We do it His way. When we do ministry His way, it upholds and rightly portrays His character and His love. We do not portray a truncated or unbalanced view of God. We rightly portray a God who is completely holy, but completely love. Doing it His way protects us from our youthful lusts, from our cravings, our idolatry of our self-righteousness. Also delivers truth and grace to those who need it to set them free from being bound by sin and error. Um, we need to uh, intimately know this play, but we need to uh, read it, memorize it, have it on the forefront of our minds. And uh, this goes for right, care group leaders, small group leaders, children ministry leaders, right, youth leaders. goes for parents and definitely for uh, pastors and elders. So let's go to the text, verses 23 through 26. And it's very simple, very straightforward. There's no really no complex interpretive issues here. Uh, Paul gives two negative commands and four positive commands. The first one is found in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Your American Standard says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. NIV says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Now, um, the, 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 the Greek verb, have nothing, is aitheo, and the literal meaning is to beg, to excuse oneself. So the idea is, you know, you're at a table and you excuse yourself. Uh, can I be excused from the table? Right? Now, may I excuse myself from this, from this uh, you know, table or this this fellowship, that's the idea here. So it's not a rude thing. It's not an overt, arrogant uh, work. It's a very humble, gracious, there is stupid argument. And the, it's, it, the Greek word is moros, moronic argument. 
there's the raka argument, that's more head knowledge. Uh, moras is character and heart. So people that are arguing, they're moronic, they're foolish in their hearts. They don't know God, they don't know themselves. They're speaking about things that they have know nothing about. And they're just foolishness, uh, uh, foolish arguments, stupid arguments, controversies going on. And your response is not to be arrogant and, and you know, proud. So you, oh, excuse me, you know, I, I, I'd rather not be part of this. Uh, you excuse yourself from uh, such wrangling quarrels back and forth, avoiding it. The second command, negative command, is found in verse 24, must not be quarrelsome. Now, um, ESV uh, translates it this way. I think NAS is more accurate here. Must not quarrel. It's not talking about attitude. It's talking about an act. Do not quarrel. Uh, the Greek word is makomai, and it literally means to like battle. It means to contend. It means to fight. Striving. So Christians are to avoid it, and they're not to engage in fighting for truth, contending of in, in that kind of context of crawling back and forth. So instead of these two negative commands, Paul gives four positive commands. Instead of doing this, instead of crawling and debating and arguing, instead of giving, getting involved with fools and their foolish arguments, instead do these four things. And he begins with, in verse 24, the Lord's servant. Dulas curiu, the slave of Christ. So Paul almost always identified himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And the other apostles, Peter and James and John, identified themselves as slaves of Christ. It was a humble label, a humble uh, identification. They, they embraced it, they rejoiced in it. And it was, a, it was an accurate portrayal because they are, and we all are, servants of Christ, Christ's slaves. And Paul, I believe, uh, began his instructions with this term because it's, it's a reminder of Timothy, a reminder of all of us that we're not independent contractors in ministry. We're not CEOs. We're not the head of our own enterprise. As we serve and minister in our families and in our church, in our church and in the world, we must remember we are Christ's servants. We are first and foremost his slaves. He is our Lord. Uh, we're not the head. We're not to plan or strategize at this level. We are to execute his game plan. Right? We don't, we're not to outthink God and have a pragmatic, better way of doing ministry. Our job is to follow what he has called us to do. We follow orders. And the commands that Paul Gives here are surprising. I mean, it's kind of it, it's, it's 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 shocking. It's so good to the soul. I, I gotta imagine if you're a new Christian, you read this passage for the first time, you're you're like gladly surprised by what Paul Paul writes here. And I mean, I think even seasoned believers are surprised at, at these instructions because with these instructions, we see the heart of God behind these commands. We see God's wisdom and compassion. For God sees and knows that behind every false belief is a person. 
And God's heart is not to win the argument. God's heart is win the soul. They say that the difference between young doctors and old doctors is this. Young doctors want to fight cancer. Older doctors, they want to cure the patient. Right? So a young doctor, yeah, let's go kill this cancer, fight cancer and, and destroy it and eradicate it and give as much chemo as possible. I read of a mom who found she had um, uh, a liver cancer, advanced stages, and she rejected all chemotherapy because she was four months pregnant. Right? Doctors wanted to kill the cancer. For her, killing cancer would mean killing her unborn child. She said, no, my child is more important to me right, than killing cancer, whatever the risk we might face. She went full term, gave birth to her, her baby boy, right? and her heart was for the child. Right? So we see behind these commands, God's heart. It's not win and conquer and fight and destroy. God's heart is to win the lost, to win them over, right? care for the souls and, 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 and bring them to the light. We see uh, God's wisdom in how he wants us to uh, reflect Jesus Christ, reflect Christ, not the prophets, the prophets came and they proclaimed the law. They proclaimed truth. When Jesus came, John 1, he came full of grace and truth. Right, both. He was not a compromiser. They accused him of being just a man of grace. He eats with tax collectors, a friend of sinners, love, love, mercy, and grace. He has no holiness. He has no integrity. They, they, they said, Lord of the flies, you know, builds a ball. He does the powers of Satan. They accused him of that. No, he was full of grace, but also full of truth. See, you follow one without the other, and you go astray from Christ. And Tertullian said that Christ was crucified between two thieves, and those two thieves can represent legalism and libertinism. Right? So libertinism is grace, grace, grace. Love everybody. Universalism. Be kind to everyone. Um, sacrifice truth for the sake of relationships. Right? So no church discipline, right? no contending for the truth, no standing on the authority of God's word. Let's all hold hands in Kumbaya and have like, you know, touchy feelies and, and feel good uh, about one of our, for each other. Right? That's the libertine. The other one is the legalist. It's the one where he fights Christians anywhere. Right? He's standing for the truth, even though, you know, Whatever the issue, he will fight for and die for any any theological point. He doesn't care who it is or where it is found. He rolls over people and destroys everyone in sight. He doesn't care if he you know, destroys churches, right? destroys people. He feels justified because he's doing it for the word of God. Well, see, you, you do either the two at the expense of the other and you go away from God's game plan. That is not God's game plan. You're not honoring God by being just love. You're not honoring God just by being uh, law. It's both. Jesus was grace and truth. Servants of Christ. As we um, are ambassadors of Christ, we must also bring grace and truth. So here we see truth that is uh, clothed in grace. 
right? It's truth, but it's covered, marinated in, in kindness and mercy and the grace and love of God. We see that with the first positive commandment, command here, verse 24, kind to everyone. You know, as much as we are to speak boldly for the Lord without compromise, we are to do it with an attitude of kindness. Kindness. We are never to be harsh, abusive, overbearing, pugnacious, and unkind. There is to be a softness in our attitude as we relate to those who are in error, whether in their lives or in their theology, including 19-year-old college students at Cypress College. Right? Kind to everyone. doesn't matter if they're 3 years old or 33 or 93. Right? That was... Um, Christ's uh, game plan. And that was Paul's game plan, First Thessalonians 2. I love this verse. I quote it quite often, First Thessalonians 2.7. As apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. We could have come to you saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. You obey. Don't ask questions. Right? Don't debate. Don't argue with me. Right? No back talk. What I say, you obey, period. I could have done that. But no, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mom tenderly cares for her own children. So Paul came as a mother caring for newborns. Tenderness, kindness. And so when we do that, we disarm people. We surprise people. We shock people. There was a person here last Sunday who hadn't been to our church in over ten, maybe nine years. He had left our church angry, upset, offended, right, hating God, you know, hating me, hating the church, hating the word. And he came back last Sunday, visited. He's out of town visiting. And he said, James, I came. I didn't know what I was going to expect. I didn't know what to expect, but I came. I'm so shocked by what I find here. Same truth. But you are different. Leaders are different. The church is different. There is such freedom and grace, vulnerability, such kindness, such, such transparency. What happened? I feel so welcome here today. I don't feel I have to like be on guard. And he said, as an unbeliever, if he ends up back here in this area, he wants to come to our church. He wants to take FOF. He wants to learn, even as an unbeliever, because not just what he hears from the church, but what he sees. And he says it's so different from when he left nine years ago. He asked me, what happened? I said, well, the gospel happened. I explained to him our gospel reformation. So when you are kind, it surprises people. It disarms people. Their hearts become open. Because they don't see this anywhere else. Especially in a religious group or a Christian group. That's the last place where you often see or experience kindness. But when we're kind to everyone, regardless of you know, their sinful background, what they're involved in, what they believe, what they're thinking, you know, they're, they're, when you're kind, it just disarms them and their hearts open. Right? So I would rather have a person with a closed mind and open heart than vice versa. It was an open mind, but the hearts are hardened. The hearts are like stone. You have a person with an open heart, you can preach the gospel. You can share with them, speak to them. So first positive is be kind to everyone. 
Secondly, able to teach. Right? Didakti cost in the Greek. It's the only other time used in the New Testament is first Timothy three two. This this talks about speaks of not just possessing knowledge, but ably communicating knowledge uh, to help a person understand truth. This is God's means of rescuing unbelievers and rescuing those who are are, are ensnared or or, or taken captive by by the enemy. It is through teaching. It's through the delivery of the Word of God. So it requires that a servant of God doesn't use his um, spiritual authority or human authority, doesn't use his personality or, or his charisma or organizational skills, no, what he relies on is his knowledge of the word and not using it as a shotgun, but using it as a surgical knife to teach a person and guide their hearts and their thoughts to the mind of God. Right? So it, 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 it's calling us to be a student of the word. And why study the word? It's not for us to like just know. You know why are you listening to sermons? Oh, I, this is interesting. I like this. I'm learning so much. I'm reading all these books. The purpose of study is to glorify God and to edify the church and to save the lost. When we study the Word of God, understand the Word of God, and we're able to communicate truth, you're able to deliver it. And God, that's God-ordained means to rescue souls. Right? So I read a Facebook interchange this week. You know, one of the brothers, Mike Lee, was sharing about how uh, he was quoting from gospel website or something, and uh, he has some friends that are different theological persuasion, and they're countering. And Mike was actually like responding with the gospel, responding with truth. And I was like, wow, Mike understands it. <laughs> I was like, Mike gets it. Like, wow, little surprise, brother. But, you know, <laughs> I was like, wow, he really understands. He's, he was able to navigate and teach. And that opportunity presented itself, he was able to teach. That's why we study the Word of God, not just for ourselves or for merit badges, but to, to win people to Christ. And people will be surprised when they're talking to you and you, you know, your retort is not like, oh, pray more. You know, those cliches, follow your heart, right? God helps those who help themselves, right? I mean, like, that's what they're used to. But when Christians or leaders respond, like ably, biblically, wisely, coherently, clearly. They're like, wow, like you guys have answers. You guys understand the culture. You guys understand unbelief or different, and you're kind, and you're able to explain God's word in a relevant way. They, they become unarmed in their, in their attitude when they, when, they, when they hear someone ably speaking and explaining the word of God. Right? That's the second command. Third is patiently enduring evil. Patient when wronged. Your American standard. NIV translates it not resentful. Right? So you're being persecuted, you're being you're being maligned. You know, that happens all the time, right? So as Christians we try to play fair. But you know, false teachers and unbelievers, they don't play fair. They hit below the belt. Right? What do they do? They question your motives. They judge your character. You know, they straw man arguments. So they can't attack the word, so they attack you. They began to say, 
you know, all these things. I've, you know, all these things like, you know, personal attacks. And so you're wrong. And so my Korean side wants to like attack back. But the gospel side, the Bible side says, patient when attacked. Right? Patient when wrong. Now, this is probably the hardest command mentioned among the six commands here. A two negative and four positive. This is the hardest one, so camp here a little bit. We all know what this is. I don't think anybody here is thinking, what is, you know, we, we understand what this means, but how can we do this? Because for me, when I'm debating with someone who is contentious, you know, my heartbeat starts to, you know, speed, speed up and my blood pressure rises and my, I have a, like a visceral reaction. And I get upset, I get irritated, I get angry. How can we be patient when we're wronged? Um, just a few thoughts on how we can do this. Three thoughts. First of all, no one understands that it's a process. Right? You surprise them, and you'll surprise yourself just by the simple understanding that no one has delivered you know, regeneration is instantaneous, but from our human perspective, it's a it's conversion, it's a process. Likewise, with sanctification, wrong behavior is not corrected overnight. You tell someone, stop doing that, start doing this, and next week they're still doing that. You shouldn't be surprised. I told you last week, stop doing that. Right? How come you're still doing it? What's going on? It's been a week, you should stop, right? One of our brothers in Sherigub years ago, he became a believer and talked about cussing. He struggled with his speech. And he said, I almost always try not to cuss too much. <laughs> so I was like encouraged, discouraged, and encouraged at the end in that one sentence. See, I almost always try not to cuss too much. So he's still cussing, but it's not too much. He doesn't always try. He almost always tries. Right? But hey, that's a, pro- that's a step. He's, he's almost always trying not to cuss too much. Before, he was just always cussing, right? So when you understand it's a process, it's an encouragement. Right? You, it encourages them, encourages you. Right? Luther said this, This life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It is not health, but it's healing. It's not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. All that to say is we're all works in process, progress here, whether in life or theology. So for me, it took me seven years to embrace Calvinism. I was a rank Arminian for seven years. And for, it took me all that time to understand and believe and embrace it. It took me one more year after that to be a cessationist, to believe that gifts have ceased. It took me six months after that for me to you know, follow Serena and believe in men's and women's roles, that men are leaders, right? <laughs> you know, and, and women are to uh, you know, not lead and exercise authority in the church. And it took me like months to understand the gospel for sanctification. And I'm still learning. It's a process. So for us to think we told them once, and I have to tell you, I have to explain it again, right? that's, that's when you're going to be like angry. Understand it's a process. It's, it, it's, it continues. Secondly, 
it was Luther's, Luther's phrase. Uh, it's Latin. I didn't take Latin. I don't know Latin, but, you know, uh, Samuel Eustace et Peccator. Luther loved saying that. He said that all the time. And so the, what he was saying is Samuel at the same time, simultaneously, right? Eustace, you know, just, justified. Et Peccator, sinful. So Christians are the most unique mutants in the world. We're mutations because we have we're, we live in a paradoxical like, reality all the time. At the same time, we are completely justified. So people, you know, attack us and malign us and uh, try to uh, unnerve us. And so, if we're insecure, if we if we have sin in our hearts, we try to defend ourselves, justify ourselves. We try to like fight our insecurity or our, our guilt or shame. Through our, by, by vindicating ourselves. But Christians, we don't need to. We can't defend ourselves. We don't, we're not worthy of defending. We don't need to because we have been justified not by what we did or what we believe. We have been fully justified, forensic justi- justification, declared righteous because of Jesus. Because of His, His cross, we are, we are righteous. We have a right standing before God. So that's our reality. So we don't need to justify ourselves, defend ourselves. God did it for us, and it's accomplished. At the same time, though, the opposite reality is also true. Simultaneously, we are sinners. We are sinful. Bishop Berkeley said, and he was talking about Romans 7, where people debate, is that a pre-conversion Testimony of Paul when he was a Pharisee, or is that post-conversion? It's post-conversion. He's present tense. I do what I don't want to do. What I don't want to do, I do. Why? Because sin is there. The reign has ended, but it's fighting guerrilla warfare. And the law is within me. So based on that, Bishop Berkeley wrote, I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the sacraments without sinning. My very repentance needs to be repented of. Why? Because sin is mixed in. Tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. Jonathan Edwards said this, When I look into my heart and take a view of its wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. And it appears to me that were it not for free grace, exalted and raised up to the infinite height of all the fullness and glory of the great Jehovah, I should appear sunk down in my sins below hell itself, far below the sight of everything, but the eye of sovereign grace that alone can pierce down to such a depth. And it is affecting to think how ignorant I was when a young Christian of the bottomless depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. So he's talking about how foolish I was as a young Christian. I didn't see my own sinfulness. So, Christians, we are fully justified and we are sinners. Therefore, when we respond to people who have false lies or false theology, our heart response is, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm not better than you. You know, I'm not, right? I'm not different. Every error you believed, I believed. Every sin you committed, I committed. There is no qualitative difference between us. We are both sinners. 
Apart from grace, we are the same. So that faith, that conviction promotes what? Humility. Promotes empathy, patience, kindness, understanding. Right? It promotes just generosity, a mercy towards that person because you're a sinner. At the same time, because we're justified, we can be bold about the truth. See, if, we, if we're justified by what we did and we are bold, we're being proud, we're being arrogant, we're boasting of ourselves. But because our justification is a forensic justification based on our substitute Jesus Christ on the cross, we can be bold, we can be strong, we can be here I stand, I can do no other. We can de- declare it without apology because it's not what we did, it's by grace. So we can be bold and not be insecure, not be riddled with guilt or shame. Right? We can freely declare it because we're justified. So, somebody wrongs you, you can attack, revenge, humiliate them, pay them back. Or you can withdraw, hide, you know, lick your wounds, sulk. But simultaneously justified and sinner allows you to be humble and bold, gracious but firm, you know, kind and gentle at the same time, uncompromising. You stand in the Word of God. Third way how is um, we remember Jesus Christ. The first is know that it's a process. Second, the paradoxical reality of every Christian. And third is remember Jesus Christ. Know how powerful it was when he was beaten and whipped. 1 Peter 2, 21-25, Christ suffered for you. Here is not in terms of salvation or sanctification. Here in terms of how to respond to those who are, are, are persecuting you. Leaving, you an, leaving us an example on how to respond when we are wronged. Right? So that we might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. He was not a sinner. Neither was deceit found, found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We are the beneficiaries of Christ's suffering and his death. So when we are wrong, we are to remember Jesus Christ and remember his example and remember the power of his example. Where on the cross he was, he was crucified and, and, and beaten and whipped and tortured and he prayed for his tormentors. And what happened? The very men who crucified Jesus, who, who tormented our Lord, were saved. The Roman centurion went away praising the Lord. Gospel of Luke. He said, surely this was the Son of God. A, a confession of faith. Seeing how powerful Christ's example was and how powerful in terms of his uh, saving uh, the the worst uh, attackers in the world, that helps us when we are wronged. It's nothing compared to what Christ endured. There's no blood shedding here. There is no physical pain involved here. And he left that example for me. And I know that this is a powerful, 
powerful um, tool of God to rescue sinners lost in sin, lost in error. And uh, Paul, I'm sure, doubly experienced this because, you know, you know, Paul got saved in the road to Damascus in, in Acts 9, but a case can be made that he really got started the conversion process in Acts 8 when he saw Stephen being martyred, being stoned to death, and they put Stephen's cloak on Saul because Saul was the, the brains, the mastermind behind Stephen's murder. And when Saul saw the manner, the, the kind, gracious, humble manner in which Saul, Stephen prayed for Saul, and Stephen prayed for all those who were killing him, it sowed a seed in Saul's heart where he was saved on the road to Damascus. So the third command, probably the most difficult, but these are some helpful ways to patiently endure evil. And the fourth one is correcting his opponents with gentleness. Right? Correcting opponents with gentleness. So we, the, the Greek word is paiduon, instruct, teach, train. But in the context, it is correcting. And it teaches us we, need, we, we must not overlook sin either in doctrine or in life. You know, nip it in the bud. Right? Ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right? So that's like a proof of love. Like with kids, right? We want to correct it at, at early because when they're when they have this character defect at three, it's much better, easier to deal with it at three years old when they're thirteen, when they're thirty-three. Right? So it's much easier. So out of selfishness or laziness, you overlook it, then you're harming yourself, your family, and testimony of Christ. Same thing in the church. We need to view each other as not, we're like borrowing each other for short term. We're committed long term. So if we see a character defect, a theological defect, you got to think, this is going to be here for the next 30 years. This care group guy is going to be in my care group for the next 30 years. It's easier to deal with it now than 30 years from now. I, sh- I can't let this go. I can't overlook it. So we can't ignore sin. We need to correct, right? And correction is like alignment. Bring it back to realignment, right? You're going astray. We need to bring you back. It's restoration, but all in covered with gentleness. And the the weak word is really meekness. It's power under control, right? So you have authority. You have knowledge. You have positional authority. You can like, railroad that person. But no, you don't do that. You did what Christ did, Matthew 11. Gentle and humble in heart. He was meek. When he was arrested on Gethsemane, he could have called 186,000 angels to demolish all these Roman soldiers. On the cross, he could have snapped his fingers and destroyed everyone. But he had power under control. He did not revile in return. He submitted himself to the Father. So in that meek way, knowing that this person is a young Christian, I've got to give that person this kind of correction. This person is really stubborn. I've got to bring a whip. Right? You know, less meekness with this guy. You know, right? That's Galatians 6.1. That's what Bob preached at our retreat. You are spiritual. Restore that person with gentleness. Right? Correcting their error. Well, these commands are all based upon the hope of verse 26. Right? Because um, the hope is Verse 25b, actually, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. The, the faith of the minister is not in their ability to 
you know, the level of kindness. Oh, I wasn't kind enough. Oh, I wasn't meek enough. Oh, I wasn't able to teach enough. That's not the power behind rescuing that person. It is, it is God. That God might grant repentance. Our hope and our trust and our confidence is in God. All the while we're correcting, all the while we're enduring, our prayer is God. You need to save this person. You need to grant them repentance. Salvation is of the Lord. Repentance is of the Lord. Sanctification is of the Lord. Glorification is of the Lord. So we are trusting God. God, I'm doing all this, but you know, this is you, the, the, the battle belongs to you. This is your work. God, would you grant this person metanoia? Not being sorry for what he has done, but a genuine change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. This is genuine repentance. No person, no matter how sincere and determined, can truly repent on their own. It's impossible for us to repent of ourselves or to cause repentance. Genuine repentance can only come from the work of the Holy Spirit through the work of God. So this is our hope. Understanding that there is spiritual warfare occurring. That they may come to their senses. right? They might become sober again. The younger son comes to his senses and they may escape from the snare of the devil, verse 26, after being captured by him to do his will. So understanding this is a spiritual warfare here. I'm not, you know, it's not just me against this person, but it's us together against sin. Right? If it's a believer. It's an unbeliever. Satan, you know how Judas, right, in, in uh, Matthew 26, Satan entered into him, right? And Satan asked for Peter as well. And how Paul gave over Alexander over to the devil, right? There's spiritual warfare occurring. And so it's not up to us, it's up to the Lord. And God might grant repentance to, to, to release them, set them free from the bondage of this addiction to false theology or to this false life. Right? Understanding all of that, we hope and trust Christ. So um, that's God's game plan. That God will use grace and truth. Truth adorned in grace. It's not about just what we say, but the manner in which we say it is what God will use to save save souls, cure cure and help, help others. Keep your Bibles open. Keep your pen in your hand. Just if you bow, bow and close your eyes and pray and close our time together. Lord, we do thank you for these instructions uh, that reveal your heart, uh, reveal your uh, holiness, and at the same time, your compassion, your love, your care for, for your people and even for the lost. You desire all men to be saved. So, Lord, we want to be uh, faithful slaves of yours. We don't want to go and follow our own game plan. We want to follow your directives. So, Lord, may we do this all the while relying upon you, knowing that these hard attitudes are impossible for us to be kind, to be able to teach, to patiently endure evil, to correct with gentleness. These are impossible. It's impossible for us, especially when we're encountering uh, personal attacks and encountering people who are unruly and stubborn and resolute in their their sins. Lord, may we remember Jesus Christ. May we look to you and remember your example. May that fuel 
fuel our fuel us as we endeavor to be uh, faithful servants of yours. May you grant grace to us in our church. In Jesus' name.